What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Not Gonna Lie. I'm your host, Jonathan Terry, and we've got a fantastic show for you today. For those of you missing The Last Dance, David Gardner comes on, reoccurring guest. Uh, we discuss what happened, our favorite moments. Uh, obviously, we couldn't get to it all. Maybe we see a, a podcast special with the two of us later on in the future. I don't know. You'll have to uh, listen to the full podcast to get the whole details. But uh, after that interview... I go into Dak's contract negotiation, why it doesn't make sense that he's getting dogged in the media, and then we go into part four of our NFL power rankings. So, fully loaded show, happy you're listening. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, tell your friends, all that sort of thing, because not only do we have a lot of good guests to look forward to in the future, uh, you can go back and you can listen to episodes. We've got interviews with AJ Vaynerchuk, Bud Dupree, Patriots new safety Kyle Duggar, loads of interviews, and obviously a ton of more stuff on the way. But here we go. Here's my interview with David Gardner. We now welcome on a recurring guest. We can say that now because he's been on twice. That's, that's how those sort of things work, I think. Uh, it's Bleacher Report's David Gardner. David, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Glad to be recurring. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, an honor, I think, off the top of my head, I think six or seven people roughly have. So it's it's an elite group. It's it's a very elite group. The, kind of uh, like the dream team. Kind, look, I, I didn't say it. You said it. But that's a little bit of foreshadowing here, I think, to, to this week's episode. I'm wearing my my um, Space Jam t-shirt right now. So I have that on. Uh, and I'm ready to go. But before we get into that, I do want to talk about uh, your podcast that you started, How to Survive Without Sports. Obviously, you know, since you came on here, we, we're going to plug it. We're going to talk about it. You've been able to interview guys like Dexter Fowler. You have an uh, interview with Kyle Guy, Enos Cantor. Talk to me a little bit about where the inspiration behind this podcast came about. So I know it, it's, it's coronavirus centered. So it's basically interviewing athletes who uh, have been affected or are doing work with the community in response to COVID-19. So I just wanted to give you, before we start, a little time to talk about what that podcast is about. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. It was really just an idea of something like a pandemic like this affects everyone in some sort of way. And it's kind of an equalizer, not a great equalizer, because obviously it's a horrible, horrible situation, but it is something that affects everyone. And so I just wanted to do something to explore the ways that it was affecting professional or amateur athletes. And there are so many different ways. So I've been able to talk to some Olympians who were hoping to go to 2020 games. And now it's the 2021 games and been able to talk to basketball players, MLB players, people who are in the middle of a disrupted season, as well as NFL players who are wondering whether their season will start in the fall right now. So it's just been an interesting experiment and idea to get to know guys on a different level. And uh, there's been some interesting moments where people have revealed, you know, maybe the depth of their depravity of no sports where they're, you know, trying to figure out things to do or um, guys who have picked up new hobbies, interesting things like that. So it's just been an interesting experiment. And I think I'll run it through, you know, whenever sports comes back. So in an odd way, I'm rooting against the longevity of my own podcast because I'd prefer for sports to return than for me to keep doing it. Oh, that's, I, I, that's very noble of you. I was going to say, you know, that's, you're, you're kind of working against um, the, the flow of things. So I'm glad that you're on, you're on the side of, of sports as opposed to the side of, you know, the, like you said, the longevity of your podcast. I have to ask, though, because the last time we had you on uh, was basically the last time things were normal. I mean, we were both still very much behind the idea that UNC was going to get that at-large bid to the tournament and obviously go on a run and win the whole thing. I remember very specifically we were both on that train. Um, (laughs) Yeah, distinctly. Yeah, I was definitely on that train. Mm -hmm, 100%. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the the tournament was still going on um, and and everything was was basically on the right track, uh, obviously until, you know, it, it started to become a very real thing in the minds of a lot of sports fans when, when Rudy Gobert uh, tested positive. So the one thing I have to ask is how much, like if we are giving out percentages here, how much of a percentage um, were you like, man, I went on this guy's podcast and he was really fun. I want to start my own. 
Um, were you an inspiration for my own <laughs> podcast? You know, Jonathan, I, uh, I had never even heard of podcasts before I was invited on this. And I really? said, wow, it's like the radio, but on the <laughs> internet. And I uh, went to my boss's Bleacher Report, hadn't heard of podcasts before. And I said, guys, this is oh, a technology man. that I think, I think it's got some legs. I think we need to get behind, <laughs> behind, behind this. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'd have to say that in terms of our revenue, our overall Bleacher Report revenue, you've been responsible for a, a sizable uptick. So uh, we, we all really appreciate you. Yeah, I mean, that's all, you know, it's, if you want to send uh, a check, I can, I can email my address afterwards. Like it's, you know, no pressure though whatsoever. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to, to help in, in whatever little way I could. I, I, I am happy to do it. Just send me your social security number and your mother's maiden name and your passwords to your bank accounts. And uh, I'll be sure to get that money right over to you. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just easier to, to wire it over that way. I, I've, I've, I've done that a couple of times. Uh, so yeah, anyways, uh, but enough of that, you know, obviously go check it out, how to survive without sports, a lot of great interviews. Uh, and if you like this interview with, with David, then you're going to want to hear him a lot more times, which you can do that on, on his podcast. So let's talk last dance, uh, for the past five Sundays, it feels like it's just, it's awesome. It feels like almost like the Super Bowl in a way that everybody's watching the same thing. You go on Twitter the timeline is reacting to something you saw just 15 seconds ago. Uh, let's start there. Talk to me about what that was like, basically all being able to be tuned in on one thing at one time. I've often talked about one of the, I think, like sad things of the internet age, or maybe it's just growing up, is that you miss out on like a common language, a common thing that everyone is talking about. And that's one of the things that I love about sports. You know, it feels like when you're in high school or when you're in college, you and your friends have your classes, your professors, you know, people that you talk about regularly. But then as you get into adulthood, you know, maybe you're watching and there's so many things to watch now. So maybe you're watching one Netflix show, but none of your friends are watching it. So you don't have that to talk about with them. It can be annoying. It can be frustrating. And so especially during a pandemic when we all feel very separate from each other in a new way. This was a really cool thing that at least NBA Twitter, sports Twitter kind of rallied around and it made it seem like, to your point, like a Super Bowl, like a playoffs kind of thing where everybody was like, all right, we're just going to watch this and we're going to talk about it. And to me, Twitter is always the best place when it is has that feeling of just being a giant group chat instead of like people trying to dunk on tweets or stupid tweets or that sort of thing. I prefer it when everybody is just online watching the same thing, making jokes about it, making interesting observations about it. So in that respect, it was, it was what I was looking for as a, you know, as a kind of relief from the rest of the world that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And, and even to your point with Netflix shows, you could all be watching the same show, but I mean, for me, I have no self-control, so I would be done with it in uh, probably a shorter amount of time than most people. And so I'm saying, hey, catch up. Like, I'll tell people to start watching a show. Like, for example, I've been trying to get people on Community because it's now on Netflix, so it's obviously easier to binge. Um, but uh, and so then they'll they'll want to ask like moments on the show or something like that. But you know, you can't give out that information without without spoiling it. So it's like, okay, just gotta get to this point, and then we can, and then I can tell you about it or or, or something like that. But uh, yeah, no, all being under, all being under one roof or, or one idea is, is very cool. Uh, let's start with, let's start at the draft when, when Michael Jordan was drafted. Uh, I thought it was, there were some, some, I saw some tweet. It said like, there, there are a lot of freezing cold takes in here, basically where they're saying, you know, MJ's good, but he's not seven foot. I mean, that's, that's something that today, if you said that in the draft, uh, and that was your reasoning for not getting a guy like that, you probably wouldn't be in the position you were, whether general manager or NBA analyst, whatever it was, you wouldn't be holding that long. Uh, I mean, I thought that was just interesting. It was just such a, such a discrepancy between, because you look at it then, Larry Bird was winning MVPs, but that was relatively new. And a guard hadn't won besides Ma Magic Johnson since Oscar Robertson in 1964, which it was a, a number of years ago. So that alone I thought was, was very interesting as far as, you know, shorter guys weren't, weren't that successful or they were, but they weren't, you know, the, the number one pick or the number two pick. 
Yeah, the NBA is a league of trends and all sports are trends like that. The way that you've seen, you know, for example, in the NFL, the proliferation of shotgun passes and spread out offenses that came from the, you know, primarily from the college game. You see stuff like that in the NBA and in all sports leagues. And so I do think there's always a temptation in a documentary like this for some revisionist history. Like if you actually look back and you think like, okay, so the Rockets selected Hakeem Olajuwon that turned out to be a really good pick. You know, he's not Michael Jordan, but he's one of the greatest NBA players of all time. And then the Trailblazers selected Sam Bowie, things like that happen. Ryan Leaf versus Peyton Manning, that sort of thing. But they also were a team that was in need of a center and they also had Clyde Drexler. So they didn't potentially need a guy like Michael Jordan, or at least that's what they thought. And so there's always a balance of team needs versus, you know, the best player available and the two GMs ahead of him made a decision based on, you know, team needs versus just the best player available. And also I would say it's always funny to me when people use being selected third as a slight, like you were selected as the number three basketball player of all potential draft eligible basketball players in your age group in the world. It's not like nobody thought you were good. You were taken third. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. It's like, uh, it's very interesting when, when people, I think it was Jamal Adams who tweeted out uh, an NFL guy from a couple years ago. He said, I remember every guy that was drafted in front of me. And then another guy that was drafted in that class said it was only five people like, you know, calm down. Like, I think it's, I think it's that sort of situation there. But my favorite thing from that draft night is they had a quote from the uh, Bulls general manager, Rod Thorne at the time, who basically complained. He said, you know, we like MJ, but we, we wish he was seven foot. So even then, it was like not everybody was 100% on board uh, with, with the team. But the Bulls needed an influx of talent, obviously not, not the best. Uh, Jordan described them as a traveling cocaine circus, uh, which was probably one of probably a top 10 moment, I think, just on, on the entire documentary um, as far as the way he worded that. But the most interesting thing to me about that season was their ability to make team's ability to make the playoffs with the losing record. I, they did it in in '84. They did it, or they did it in '85 when he when he broke his his foot and that whole situation went down. Uh, and they were they were like 16 games under 500. I mean, I don't think that stuff doesn't happen today anymore, like like it does then. Uh, so I thought that was that was very interesting. Yeah, I think one of the funniest things that has happened during this series is the old heads versus the young guys and like, oh, you know, the league, you know, you could never survive in the 1990s or 1980s NBA. And it's also like, okay, maybe, but at the same time, you know, what did they go 38 and 44 that first year and Mm -hmm. made the playoffs? And it's like, yeah, "Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore either. Yeah. And I think as far as this whole generational debate goes, um, I think one of the toughest things to to um, wrap my head around is the idea that like, you know, Jordan got pushed around by the by the bad boys, obviously jumping ahead here. Um, then he bulked up and then he was able to to beat them. But LeBron was has been, you know, bulked up. I think if, you know, as far as as far as generations go, they'll be able to adjust really easily. But I think at the same time, you you can't take 80s and 90s basketball and say, oh, they couldn't survive here. Well, yeah, they didn't get the the AAU coaching. They didn't get the you know year round basketball, the training. I mean, MJ was smoking cigars and 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 drinking beer like all the time, and he was still in in playing shape relative to the era. So it's it's such a it's such a a, a weird comparison to make because you honestly don't know, uh, given the circumstances and the situations each people or each each era had. Um, but obviously it's, it's a debate that's never going to end because you can't travel back in time and, and play the team uh, from the 80s. So obviously it's going to provide us with, with points of contention uh, from, for a long time. But where do you stand on this? What's your mindset on the uh, 80s and 90s versus today? Well, I think there's almost no question that physically guys are stronger and more capable and more skilled today than they were then. I mean, even if you just think about, you brought up 
Michael Jordan's weightlifting, right? And that he didn't bulk up for several years that he was in the NBA. I would say that the strength training program at colleges, and let's not even just say colleges, let's say it's certain advanced prep schools. So like IMG Academy, the guys who are there are on more advanced strength training programs than 1980s NBA players were based on what the team gave them. And so the idea that someone like LeBron couldn't go back and that he'd be roughed up by these guys, I think is really hard to believe. To me, what would be interesting is the peak form of style of play. So like watching the Golden State Warriors play their kind of like four out, really fast, three-point driven basketball against one of these teams from the 1980s that was more built as an inside-out team. I'd like to see less the talent and skill and more the battle of wills between the two ways of playing. And my temptation, and this is probably just my modern bias, would be to say that those guys from the 80s couldn't keep up with guys from today's NBA in terms of the way that they push the basketball up the floor and in terms of the way that they're shooting from three-point range. You know, Jordan, as you saw over and over again, was really a mid-range pull-up guy. And in today's NBA, that doesn't really fly. Of course, he would have become a tremendous three-point shooter. He would have adapted to the style of play. But I think that today's style of play statistically is better and I think that stylistically it would be harder for old NBA players to adjust to the new style of play than for new NBA players who are stronger to go back and you know kind of bang around in the paint as the 1980s basketball style was yeah also a lot of air balls that was a very reoccurring theme throughout the documentary was if one guy airballs one shot it makes house of highlights it makes all the pages you know everybody's making fun of him there were probably like based on the the game film, you know, six to eight, maybe more air balls a game. It was just a regular thing. Like it was almost like they didn't have basketball hoops at a certain point. I was like, <laughs> what is in your practice facility? Are the rims at a different level? What's going on in there? Yeah, some of them, some of them were not good. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna say that they were not close. Um, the Nike, so Nike signing Jordan, obviously giving us a good anecdote about his mom saying, "Yes, you need to take the meeting." I thought, so they reminded me of a book I read. So players, I don't know if you've read it by Matthew Futerman, um, t- uh, talks about Mark McCormick, who was basically an agent uh, or an aspiring agent during the 70s, I believe. And he was the one who was responsible for getting Arnold Palmer the, uh, the big sponsorships and basically making it uh, a possibility for athletes to make money. Because in the book, they tell stories about um, Roger Staubach had to sell uh, real estate in the off season because his, his salary in the NFL wasn't paying him enough. So anyways, that, that's just, uh, there you go, guys. That's, I haven't ever given out a book recommendation, but players, that's a good one. Uh, definitely check it out. But uh, I thought it was just interesting in the way that they kind of referenced it a little bit, how athletes didn't really make that amount of money. You know, what, what he was able to bring in with, with Nike and, and obviously the signature shoe, they talked about it selling uh, like crazy. Um, so I thought that was that was kind of they ushered in the new era as basketball was gaining notoriety. You know, uh, Larry and Magic had had built it up, and and MJ was taking it to the next level. Uh, I, I thought that was I, I don't know if you had any thoughts about um, you know Nike versus Adidas or how that's a that's a big what if story too. You know how how different does that look? Are are Jordans as popular if he signs with Adidas? The only part that I'd like to bring up about that that I was disappointed about was that Sonny Vaccaro wasn't included in uh, the documentary. I mean, his face was on a picture at one time, but Sonny is a guy who, in my opinion, should be in the NBA Hall of Fame for his contributions to the game. He was way ahead of the times in terms of player empowerment, in terms of the cartel that is the NCAA. I think that uh, I would have loved to have heard more from him because he was the driving force in making sure that that deal got done for Nike and for Michael Jordan. And then he was essentially ostracized from the company, never from the basketball community because he always built up great relationships. But, you know, he was the guy that identified not just Michael, but Kobe Bryant for Nike as well. And I would have loved to have, apparently he did sit down for the documentary, but we didn't get a chance to hear him. I would have loved to have heard from him during that time yeah no that definitely would have been been a cool moment for sure okay we got to talk the the guy who who is probably portrayed as the villain and that's how you know you're going to get these biases obviously when the athlete gets final cut on the documentary we're going to see some of this this sort of stuff work out but 
but Jerry Krause. I mean, I, I learned for the first time that he was a White Sox scout and asked Jerry Reinsdorf, hey, can I be the GM of the Bulls that you just bought? And, and everyone told him that's not a good idea. And Jerry Reinsdorf was like, yeah, sure, you can be. You can be the general manager if you want to. Uh, I mean, yeah, from the jump, we were, we were, it was ingrained in us from the documentary that we were not supposed to like Jerry Krause. Did you, uh, did you feel that same, that same way too? I don't, well, I definitely felt that he was supposed to be the villain of the documentary. I found it hard to feel like he was though in the end. I mean, he essentially Mm -hmm. compiled the greatest team of all time and the greatest coach of all time. And the idea that egos got in the way of that is kind of the oldest story in sports history. Everybody wants to be the guy who claims credit. Fortunately, they had a coach in Phil Jackson who's kind of like a hippie and has more championship rings than I have years on this planet probably (laughs) at this point. And so he didn't ever, like his ego wasn't really paramount. And so he was able to deal with these big personalities. Krause, on the other hand, had an ego on him. And so does Michael Jordan, as you can see from this documentary, if you didn't know already. Had no clue. Had no clue at all. (laughs) Exactly. And so to me, it is, it was just a battle of egos. And of course, if you're Jordan and you're the guy who has the final say on the cut of this documentary, you're going to make it look like you were the guy who made the team win. But of course, Krause deserves an incredible amount of credit for assembling this team. If you really believe it's the greatest team of all time, it's not like Jordan handpicked these players that, to complement his skills perfectly and the coach to make sure that they all work together in a scheme that fit them. So uh, calling him a villain is it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, because he, he made that draft day trade for Scottie Pippen, signed Horace Grant, uh, and even though MJ and Scotty weren't the biggest fans of it. He got Tony Kukoc over, uh, which I mean, that was a moment too during the Olympics when they when they uh, battled it out there. Um, yeah, no, I think he he did a great job. And at the end of the day, um, obviously he's not going to get the most credit because the cameras aren't on him. The TV, you know, isn't focused on what he's doing on the court. Um, so that's it's it's very interesting and like you said and unfortunately uh, he died too so he didn't yeah have the no and that, that was the thing is it a documentary was, mm-hmm, that was I, I was reading that too and it was like oh well you know now he doesn't get a chance to to tell his side of the story which is obviously obviously unfortunate um but yeah he deserves a lot of credit and i think it was it was somewhere in the middle i think that's where the trouble came about is that i think he deserved a lot of credit but he maybe d- believed he deserved more of it. And that's where kind of the, the rift came. Um, but obviously looking back on it retrospectively, like we can all say like he was a good, he was a good GM. Um, but yeah, moving forward here, bad boys. Uh, if you haven't seen that, that documentary on 30 for 30, uh, definitely recommend it. It's a really good one. Um, and, and that's just, they were another sort of villain, I think. And they were a villain of the entire NBA, but um I watched that 30 for 30 number of years ago. I'll have to watch it again recently, but uh, you almost, you almost feel for him. You kind of get to see the human side of, of the bad boys uh, just a little bit, but that was MJ's first real rivalry, I think. And they may be the only team really to, to get the best of him when, when he got going, you know, as far as, as far as winning MVPs and, and, and that sort of thing. And Doug Collins too. Didn't even mention him, but I made this comparison. Let me know what you think about it. So I said a couple weeks ago that Doug Collins reminds me a lot of Mark Jackson when he was the coach of the Warriors. And then Phil Jackson got to come in and he played the role of Steve Kerr, where he was basically just managing egos and and coaching them to championships. What, What do you think about that? I do think that there is some truth in that analogy, but I also like would credit both Steve Kerr and Phil Jackson with being incredible basketball minds. And I also think that this happens a lot more on the college level, but some guys will say like uh, the greatest example is John Calipari. They'll say like John Calipari doesn't really know X's and O's basketball. He's just like a recruiter of talent and he knows how to manage egos and get the best out of his players. And to me, I would say, what more would you want from a coach than that? That's exactly Mm. what you want a coach to do. You want a coach to be a guy who the best players in the world want to play for because maybe you have the best coach in the world, but I don't think that that makes that much of a difference. I think the difference in coaching is maybe 10 to 20% versus the difference in talent is 70 to 80% of what's going on on the court. And so 
sometimes it's perceived as a slight against these guys. And I don't understand why, because you are the manager of a team as the coach of the team. And if you make your players play to their best ability, then you should get the credit for doing that. Mm-hmm. No, that that's fair. That is definitely a good point. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I've done it myself. I think that that I, I feel like Steve Kerr just kind of dove into that coaching spot with the Warriors and and they were the ones that guided him to uh, you know, their their big wins and their championships. But it takes a lot. I mean, we saw what came out with Kevin Durant and, and Draymond. There was a lot of beef going on in that in that final season um that that they had to manage. So it was a lot more than just just, you know, sitting back and, and watching them shoot threes. No, I mean, imagine sure. Tom Thibodeau being the coach of that team. Does that team, <laughs> is, are they as successful as the Warriors were under Steve Kerr? I would argue absolutely not. You know, there would have been infighting that would have spilled out into the public. There would have been, you know, uh, guys worn down during practice. Steph Curry would have probably gotten more injured than he did based on the amount of work that he puts those guys through. And would you say that Tom is a better basketball mind, quote unquote, than Steve Kerr? Maybe. And yet, what happened? Steve Kerr was the better coach for that team. And I think the same is true of Phil Jackson. You know, he just turned out to be the better coach of that team. From an X's and O's standpoint, he's also a brilliant guy who, you know, perfected an offense that dominated the league for a decade, but he was a manager of egos. And that led to, you know, I don't even know. What does he have? 12 championships between player and coach? Probably. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, And that's the thing. His coaching start, that was an interesting story. Uh, Most, most, you know, most guys that are former NBA players, they, they start off as like an assistant or maybe they go the college route. But no, he went to a totally different country where it was okay for, for uh, you know, guns or it's just frowned upon for gunshots at a, at a basketball game where it's just, oh, you can't come to home games anymore because you, uh, I think, was it the mayor? I think the mayor shot a ref. That, call that, deserved go their way. Whole, that deserved a whole <laughs> documentary on its own, whatever was happening there. And yeah. Phil Jackson tripping on mushrooms in foreign countries, I would also <laughs> watch a full documentary on. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there were, there were little anecdotes. I mean, Rodman going to Vegas, that would be another one of them where it's just, we need 10 parts on, on just that alone. Just the 48 um, hours of raw footage of Dennis Rodman in Las Vegas is what I was looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so he obviously had a, a, a different come up than most um, getting to the NBA. But like you said, developed a triangle offense, won six championships with the Bulls, won four more with the Lakers, I think, um, just for good measure. But sorry, I got, I got derailed, the, the bad boys. Uh, <laughs> that, they're probably the most interesting uh like as far as dynamic goes obviously they had dennis rodman too so that kind of adds to their uh to their their interest or their their excitement about them but going into it um you know the bad boys basically developed this style of play that was that was so different from what we'd seen from a lot of other guys i mean they they fully dove into you know if we're gonna foul you you're gonna feel it type of thing uh, the technical was not called or the flagrant was not called nearly as much as it was today because I think probably half of them would have gotten ejected every single game for some of the hits that they that they laid down. Um, I mean, do you think it, it kind of all culminated with Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons not shaking their hand um, after they, they finally got past them? Do you think it's it's worth, like, worth harboring that? Because we know MJ – is one to hold a grudge. And he has done so with just a couple of people um, throughout his time in the NBA. Do you think that one is warranted? I mean, at a certain point, you got to say, because they mentioned it in the doc, the Celtics did it the year the Pistons beat them. Uh, are, you, are you as upset or are you wanting more sportsmanship out of the Pistons because of that? Not really. I didn't come away, you know, with any kind of different opinion of the bad boys. I think they played the style that they played. And like you said, maybe some of the what they did now would be considered technical fouls or whatever. But in that same way, you know, we talked about football earlier. There are things that championship teams did from the 90s, leading with the crown of their helmets, you know, to tackle people. I don't think that that's a good idea, but I do Mm-mm. think that using the full latitude that the rules are allowing you to use 
is smart. And that's what some of the greatest coaches in across sports have done. You know, like, I guess the most obvious example is that Bill Belichick will go to the full extent of the law in order to mm. win a fourth down conversion from time to time and to gain an extra yard. And so to me, you know, reputationally, these guys are who we thought they were, uh, to borrow a great phrase. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, Scotty Pippen and also, was... And also, I think oh. it's a little too chummy in the modern NBA as well. You know, I like, I prefer some people not to like each other very much. Well, and that's the thing is we hear about, oh, these 90s guys didn't like each other, but then all of a sudden MJ's going and playing golf with Danny Ainge the day before one of their games. Like, you don't see any of that. Like, if imagine if LeBron sat down with Steph Curry for a dinner before the finals. Like, imagine how viral that picture would go and, and the talking heads wouldn't stop for probably the entire length of the finals, if not longer. Um, but so that was something. I can't that, even talk to players afterwards without putting his hand in front of his yeah, mouth exactly. so that people won't read his lips. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, saw, we saw a double standard there. That was one of, one of the few that we saw. Um, Scotty Pippen was an interesting story as far as his come up in central Arkansas, uh, not to mention Barack Obama, former Chicago resident, and Bill Clinton, former Arkansas governor. I thought those were two just fantastic um, little taglines in case you didn't know what they ended up to be. Uh, we got to see them at that moment in time. I thought it was, I thought it was funny that they used those taglines because the documentary, the director said that you know he wanted to contextualize them as to why they would be in there, not just to have them be you know, celebrity cameos or whatever. But then they showed like Leonardo DiCaprio at the end for no reason. And that was just a total celebrity cameo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was just so we could get a whole new batch of memes. Um, It was the death of the Leo pointing meme from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like him seeing himself. That was the, that brought that meme full circle. Yeah, I saw, yeah, that perfect combination of the meme. I felt like that the director must have seen the movie because just the way it all came together was was absolutely perfect. Um, yeah, so let's let's keep going here. Scotty Pippen talked about it. His come up was was great. I thought it was fantastic the story, and they totally glossed over the fact that he just grew seven inches. Like that that was something that they didn't really that should have been discussed more. Where it's like, oh, he worked really hard, you know, when he made his way up. And he also went from from undersized to uh, you know a, a good small four power forward combo, which is something they just were like, oh no, we don't need to. That's that's not important. Size doesn't matter in the NBA. <laughs> yeah, I think that actually Scottie Pippen was maybe the hero of the documentary, the way that he was willing to bear the responsibility for things that he uh, felt like was his fault, and the way that he rose up to become this complimentary player, accepting his role and really like carrying that team for large stretches. Uh, I was more impressed by him than by probably anybody else in the documentary. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. He had to, he had to shoulder a lot of the load, especially when, when MJ left. Uh, so they won the three championships. I mean, those are pretty like, you know, it's, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a big struggle. I mean, obviously the Knicks were, I know we had AJ Vaynerchuk on the podcast a couple weeks ago. He said he hasn't seen it yet because he is a Knicks fan and that was just too painful for him. I mean, no, nobody suffered more in this documentary than Knicks fans having to relive all of the nineties losing to Michael Jordan. You think the Knicks fans are basically accustomed to suffering at this point. That's fair. It was my favorite line of the whole series was like when they kept talking about Patrick Ewing had a good game, but MJ would just like one up him just a little bit. Uh, That was just like, just perfect. That's literally how it, how it was encompassed. But they win three straight finals. Um, Charles Barkley's underrated. I'm just going to toss that in there. I think he does not get enough respect. Watching him play in the finals um, was impressive. I mean, just his style of play, and it, it was it was smooth. You know, obviously he's not the same Charles Barkley from a from a body type standpoint that he is. You know, that he was back there in the '90s. But I think he deserves a lot more respect um, as far as how he played. Uh, throughout the 90s and the I, I the people that were saying Draymond could guard Charles Barkley I hope they watched this documentary and were like eh, maybe not maybe maybe he he couldn't guard him um but maybe not right now but peak Draymond is one of the best small ball centers who's ever played defensively I think he has worn off quite a bit 
over the last several mm. years. But no, I, I mean, I think it would be an interesting matchup to watch. And yes, people do think of Charles Barkley as the kind of slightly uh, heavier guy now, but he was a very svelte, very athletic basketball player. Yeah. So the big, the big story obviously was Jordan retiring. Do you believe, do you believe the rumors where, you know, it was some, something to do with gambling or, or they kind of glossed over it and basically just had a cut scene of David Stern, Michael Jordan saying, no, you know, that was it. And they're like, we're done with this. Um, are, are you, are you a conspiracy theorist? Do you think maybe there was something, something a little extra going on? I'm not really a conspiracy theorist with that. I think, you know, I would put more on the side of, you know, Michael Jordan's father uh, had just died at that time. And he was, they had a complicated relationship, which the documentary a little bit went into. But I think that that was probably the bigger motivating factor in him walking away from basketball for a period of time. That and just the overwhelming nature of fame. I don't think that he was banned from the NBA. I think for that to have happened, he would have had to have had not just one time of gambling on NBA games themselves. Like, I don't think the NBA would have banned him for even betting millions of dollars on golf games because what concern is that to them? I think it would have only been if he was betting on the Bulls themselves and he was doing it repeatedly. I think it would have taken three strikes probably to get somebody like Jordan any kind of ban from David Stern because of how valuable he was to the league. Like, so I, I'm not, I'm not sold on the idea that it, it had anything to do with gambling. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting conversation, but um, I don't think, you know, if, if there is something there's at this point we're we're not going to, we're not going to find out and we just have to be, have to be okay with that. Um, yeah. But yeah, Terry Francona was Michael Jordan's manager, which was like, in all time that I was Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV when that happened. I was like, wait a minute. I know this guy, this guy did pretty good for himself too. Um, which was obviously just one in a, a number of countless moments where it was like, you're just double taking the screen uh, throughout that documentary. But baseball career uh, was, uh, they kept saying he could have gotten better, which was like, he tried really hard. That's basically what I was gathering was like, you know, he wanted to be good. Um, but I don't know if I believe he could have made it all the way to the major leagues, maybe, but I'm no, I'm no baseball scout. Um, I don't know if, if you, if you uh, do that sort of thing in your spare time, if you can shed some any light on this situation. I'm not a baseball scout by any means. The most interesting thing to me always in that time frame is that Sports Illustrated put him on the cover striking out and he never spoke to Sports Illustrated again for the rest of his life. He's never talked to Sports Illustrated again. I can, I can just imagine uh how we how we do in today's media like how many guys would be on his like don't talk to me list um which leads me to another great point the the story of lebradford smith um i don't remember if that was later on or it was during his first repeat but to make up a story about a guy to give you an edge over an opponent was like if you wanted to bundle up michael jordan and what he was about in one anecdote it was that one right there like he would do whatever it takes to win even say that a guy told him good game, uh, but but that not the case. And then he just dropped 50 on him. Yeah, I think when you're the disadvantage, when you're a person who is motivated by slights and you're also the best player in the world is that you have to get pettier and pettier as the slights go on because very mm -hmm. few people are slighting you anymore. And so you have to just go deeper and deeper and sometimes make things up and, I guess that was the mental advantage that he felt like he had over his opponents. And, you know, clearly it worked. I don't think it's the only way to motivate oneself. And I don't even necessarily think it's the best way to motivate oneself, but it worked for him. And, you know, I can't argue with that. Yeah. I mean, it, it got results. So that's, that's the only thing we can, can really look for, man. Time's just been flying by. Let's zoom through this 98 season and then we'll, we'll let you go here. Just like they uh, did on the documentary. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, we talked about Rodman to Vegas. Um, so that, that was obviously a big deal there. I don't remember their exact record, but I know at one point they were eight and seven, but I think they finished with 60 wins. So they went on, or I think close to it, an absolutely insane tear. Let me see if I can, if I can Google it up right here. Um, I think they were 62 and 20 at the end of the season. Yeah. So, so they went on a, 
so they were what is that 52 and 13 over the next which is nuts for a team that was like i kept it kept feeling like they were trying to build up some sort of like storyline with like man what are these bulls gonna do this isn't the bulls of before and i was like what they're they went there they won you know a number of games at the all-star break they were like five games back on the top team in the nba and i was like they're they're winning games they're 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 playing really well um so that was i mean i i don't a classic classic uh you know sports reporting you know you got to get a story out, yeah. of, out of something but some of the things that were interesting to me is obviously scotty pippen his his contract um that sort of whole thing of, of how he decided to get surgery early on um and and i feel like we i don't he doesn't say it directly but there are just moments whether it's the his back um in that game six or it's the the migraine where or even this contract situation where mj is a little bit he sounds a little annoyed with scotty like he's not at that level of of what jordan is i don't know if you sense that as well I do think that he had annoyances that were petty and that went back, you know, an impossible amount of time. About the migraine particularly, I would just say if you've ever had a migraine, you wouldn't wish it on any person in your entire life. It feels like your brain is going to explode out of your skull and that's the sign that it's getting better before then. Like you can't look at, you can't see light, you can't hear noises, you feel like you're going to throw up, like so to me, that particular story was the embodiment of the worst of Jordan, where he didn't really have an ability to feel empathy for other people. And he wanted people to hold themselves to this standard that he held himself to, even when it wasn't in their best interests to do it. Yeah. And, and just to culminate the whole thing, I think probably the end of episode eight was the best episode of the last dance. That's, that's where we'll end up here. Cause obviously, you know, we know how, how this whole sort of story ends, but that moment where MJ is basically reflecting on his entire career and they're asking him, you know, if he thought his, his style of leadership was a little too rough. And he's basically saying like, uh, I think that my favorite quote from that like little section was like, they say I'm a dictator. Well, they've never won, uh, how many, or how many tiles have they won? But then you see a moment of, of like, where he kind of chokes up and he's reflecting. It's like, well, maybe was it all worth it? I thought that was probably the most powerful moment and my favorite moment. Cause you get to see looking back on it 20 years later, Jordan saying, did I have to do all, you know, he's kind of, it's almost like he's doubting himself a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I tweeted earlier that one thing that was most interesting to me was the idea of this documentary in 10 parts basically just revealed to a greater extent what we all knew about Jordan was he was this ruthless competitor. He was he approached life and the game of basketball as zero sum. He had to win and everybody else had to lose. There was no way to share any of the glory or any of the credit. And how does that extend into your personal life? And I think it's probably pretty obvious that it did extend into Jordan's personal life with grudges that went well beyond the game. And I, as a storyteller who's interested in the psychology of the people that I write about, I would have really loved for someone, the director or whoever was asking the questions at that point, just to push him a little bit and say, you know, what are the obvious things to ask at that point to say, like, did you ever think about like, this was a connection to the way that your father treated you that, you know, did, and the way that you described that, that that didn't always make you feel good. Did you ever think that you were, that that was the root cause of that? Did you ever think back and think, you know what, I could have gone easier on other people and they could have been more successful. I could have been a better teammate, a better friend. And it was interesting only because you knew in that moment that that was as deep as the documentary was ever going to go into the mind of Michael Jordan. And it was interesting, but it left me, you know, wanting more. And it also left me wanting more in terms of, I really want to know how he sleeps at night as the owner of the Hornets. <laughs> yeah. We, that's the thing is we can't even, we didn't even have time to go into, uh, into that sort of whole thing or, or even in the documentary, but speaking of leaving people wanting more, uh, I think we're going to end it here. We probably like, I don't know about you, but we, we missed so many things that we could have talked about um, as far as the documentary goes, but I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you taking the time, but maybe, maybe we'll get you on later on and we can do a part two and we can fill in some of those other moments. Cause I know there was a ton of them.
10 part podcast to go for a 10 part documentary. <laughs> you said it, not me. Uh, no, I'll tell you what, after, after quarantine ends and, and your podcast is retired, we'll go through each episode and we'll, yeah. uh, and Perfect. We'll, we'll, we'll break we'll it down. Do, yeah. A, a mini series. Uh, but yeah, anyways, appreciate it. Always fun having you on. We'll have to get you on again soon. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate you. So one of the biggest storylines of this past week is uh, Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback, requested $45 million in the last year of a five-year deal. And that's not the first time we've heard anything about his contract information leak. I know Chris Sims put out a, a report that was later retracted. It was proven to be false, uh, not true. And honestly, first off, I'm surprised there's so much pushback on, on Dak getting paid. Like, are, are we really buying into the stuff the, the media and more importantly, Jerry Jones is telling us and, and taking his side in the dispute? I mean, players have worked hard for guaranteed contracts and large dollar amounts and whatever Dak makes, we'll, we'll, we know that Jerry Jones is making exponentially more. So let's not feel, let's not feel bad for him, all right? Let's, let's get that out of the way. That's obviously a much larger debate for a much larger day, but let's look at who Jerry Jones has paid. He paid Ezekiel Elliott a disgusting amount of money Six years, $90 million, with 50 of it guaranteed. And statistically, he'll be cut or the contract's going to be restructured before it comes to a close. I mean, this guy's getting $16.5 million in the year 2025. It doesn't make sense for a running back. Going even further, he gave Demarcus Lawrence the most guaranteed money, $65 million over five years, out of a non-QB, out of all the non-QBs in the league. And this deal could be worth as much as $105 million if he lives up to his end of the bargain. Again, probably not likely. Even Amari Cooper got paid this summer. Five years, 100 mil with 40 of it guaranteed. So Jerry Jones has locked up every single key piece on his team, but he doesn't want to get out the checkbook for Dak? Well, it's not that simple. Despite the narrative being pushed by fans, the negotiation is a negotiation of length, not dollar amount. Dak's camp wants a short three-year around-that-range deal, while the Cowboys want him locked up for long-term, five, six, seven years. This idea of a shorter contract cashing in on an ever-rising salary cap was made popular in the NBA by LeBron James signing one year with one-year player options to eventually decline that player deal and cash in every year to take advantage of the salary cap. So it's not a new concept that Dak is trying out. It's been, it's been proven to work in the past, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the NFL's example of this is something like that: the franchise tag. Now, I don't want to get into all the logistics of a franchise tag because Honestly, I don't really get it completely myself. The Cowboys extended the offer of this franchise tag to the Cowboys QB, and once it is signed, Dak will make $31 million this upcoming season. Every year he signs the tag, the money increases in increments. So next year, it will be 120% of the prior season's tag, or $38 million. Year three would be a 144% pay increase from year two's tag, which would cost the Cowboys about $54 million just for one year of play. Kirk Cousins famously had to deal with two tags from the Redskins before finally getting paid by the Vikings. So right now, looking at the first two years of the tag, 31 and 38 million, the beginning of his negotiation has to be 34 million. I mean, that's the average he's going to get if they tag him twice anyways. So why not, why not start there? Uh, the water got a little murkier in terms of negotiation as Andy Dalton signed on a hometown discount with the Cowboys, a one-year $3 million deal to be the backup. Uh, and I think it's important to note that this is an awesome move for the Cowboys. Getting Andy Dalton is an absolute steal. And I genuinely believe if he was the starting quarterback for the full season of the Cowboys, they'd probably go 9-7, and 10-6, and six and be in the playoffs. But he's not the long-term option. Right now, Dak Prescott, in my opinion, is a top 15 quarterback in terms of talent. I think that's widely accepted. Combined with his age and upside, he's a fringe top five quarterback in terms of building for the future. I mean, you've got the obvious ones, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson. But as far as that number five debate, whether it's Kyler Murray, Jimmy Garoppolo, or whoever it may be, uh, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to hear those arguments. I think Dak is right up there at number five. And if he's not five, it's a close six or seven. Finding a talent in the NFL to play quarterback is both incredibly difficult and important to a team's success. Look at the past few Super Bowl winners. The Chiefs don't win without Mahomes. The Eagles don't take down the Pats without MVP-level play from Carson Wentz in the regular season and, you know, 373 yards and three touchdowns from Nick Foles in the Super Bowl. That's not even mentioning a guy named Tom Brady who obviously has a lot of success when it comes to winning these sort of games. 
Ultimately, the short-term deal makes even more sense when we remember the aforementioned Patrick LeVon Holmes will be hitting the market in the next two years. The Super Bowl champion and MVP will blow contract numbers out of the water, and Deshaun Watson will be trailing close behind him. This lines everything up perfectly for Dak to see a sizable increase in cash. Keep this in mind the next time anyone mentions Dak is crazy for asking for $45 million. This may seem like a lot now, but when Mahomes is pushing 50, the picture becomes a lot more clear as to what Dak and his camp were trying to do. In short, Dak may not have proven a ton in terms of top-tier value, but the Cowboys championship window is closing, and the NFC is not getting any easier. Let's go back to Kirk Cousins. The Redskins took the bet that they would be better off without having him under center and not paying him the money he deserved. He went to the Vikings, and after a, a rough, short, uh, rough first season, he eventually won a playoff game and is looking to build on that as potential threats in the NFC North. Dak is not greedy for wanting short-term security to continually cash in on the most important position in football. It's just economics. All right, now that we got that out of the way, let's move on here. Uh, obviously, you know, I, I don't think I don't think Dak Prescott is necessarily underrated. I think he's he's pretty well rated in the, in the minds of most people. But at the same time, he deserves his money. I think that's the case with a lot of players because it's simply hard to find a quarterback in the NFL and a guy that can be your your franchise guy. I mean, we see a team like the Bears who's been struggling for it seems like forever. You know, they may have a great defense, and I don't think they've ever had a true franchise quarterback, and, and that's what really puts you over the top. Uh, but anyways, hope he, hope he gets some money. He deserves it for sure. But let's get into part four of the power rankings. We're going to be unveiling teams 20 through 17. For those of you who have maybe missed previous episodes, don't follow us on Instagram. We'll do a quick recap. 32, Jacksonville Jaguars. 31, the Detroit Lions. 30, the Cincinnati Bengals. 29, the Jets. 28, the Panthers. 27, the Redskins. 26, the Giants. 25, the Miami Dolphins. 24 is the aforementioned Chicago Bears. 23, the Falcons. 22, the Chargers. And 21, the Arizona Cardinals. So here we go. Team number 20 is the team that, that is relocated. New new uh, new city, same name. It's the Las Vegas Raiders. As far as ads go, I think they did a great job of signing basically every available free agent on the market, uh, half of which were Dallas Cowboys players. So Nick Kwiatkowski, Corey Littleton, two guys that obviously were not Cowboys players, but filled a big need at linebacker. That was probably their worst uh, position group last year. And they went out and arguably got the best linebackers on the market. I think they're going to start right away. They're going to make a big difference. Uh, but speaking of Cowboys guys, Malik Collins, fantastic player. I think he's going to be he's going to shine in Las Vegas. Jeff Heath, Jason Witten, Nelson Aguilar, Carl Nassib, and Marcus Mariota, which was a very interesting deal that they had done, especially considering the amount of money they gave. As far as losses go, not a lot of losses. Carl Joseph. Uh, safety and to hear Whitehead was released, one of those linebackers on the core. And then in the draft, they obviously had the first round pick from the Bears. I, yeah, it was the Bears, the last last first round pick of that of that Khalil Mack trade. But they took Henry Ruggs with their pick. Damon Arnett, a mm, little questionable in uh, the their second first rounder. And then Lynn Bowden, a guy who played quarterback and wide receiver in college, but I think they're they said they're going to shift him to running back. So first things first quarterback questions is Derek Carr the starter I mean Marcus Mariota got quite a bit of money for a guy who's going to be riding the bench unless that's not what he's going to do I mean we know John Gruden loves quarterbacks we know he I think he had five on the roster last year so he's no stranger to filling up the room with as many uh, potential guys as possible and we also know that he's not the biggest fan of of Derek Carr so that will be something to look out for does Marcus Mariota make an appearance in special packages? Does he take over as the starter eventually? Uh, and then what does that mean for Derek Carr? I mentioned before, linebacker was a big need uh, defensively. They helped fill that gap with some free agent moves, which was great. Uh, and then Arnett. I don't really understand at 19 why you went for a guy like that. I know the uh, Falcons reached on A.J. Terrell. We talked about that a little bit. I don't mind if you like the guy. Like I, I totally understand uh, and even if you think he's a first-round talent, but why not Why not test the market, try and trade back? Like, for example, I didn't hate the Dolphins taking Noah Igbenogany at the end of the first round. Even though he wasn't one of my higher-rated corners, uh, they, they traded back. They got a fourth-rounder for him. So at the very least, if he doesn't work out, you've got another shot at a pick for a guy who can, can make the roster. And that makes the first-round pick worth it if you're going to take a chance on a guy like that. 
but I don't like the move because they they stayed pat and, and they took him. That was a little bit questionable to me. And another thing is, how is Vegas going to receive the team? I mean, we we don't know. I, I think Vegas, the Golden Knights were, were big fans, and and they they really had uh, a, a good, obviously making it to the Stanley Cup Finals their first season helped a lot, but they had a big push from their fans, and I'm sure they'll respond the same way in football. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're playing a very tough schedule. Obviously, the AFC West is tough. They're playing the NFC South. And then get this for a stretch. They go Saints, Pats, Bills, Chiefs from weeks two to five. So going through a gauntlet at the beginning of the season, and then they get week six off. That is team number 20, the Las Vegas Raiders. Next up at 19, uh, we had a player from this team on the podcast last week. You can go back and check it out, Bud Dupree. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. So didn't do a ton to the team. I think they left it relatively untouched. Added Eric Ebron and Stefan Wisniewski. Uh, really good pieces, solid role players. Lost Javon Hargrave. And in the draft, took a tight end wide receiver combo, Chase Claypool, linebacker Alex Highsmith, and then a running back Anthony McFarland Jr. A lot of question marks on offense. That is the thing that concerns me. And we, we know, and I talked about it last week, and I, and I feel the same way even when Bud Dupree's not on, the Steelers' defense is really good. Like, they were a top three defense from from every angle. They've got stars. Uh, but that offense, what are you going to do? I mean, they, they had a combination of Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph. That's not going to work out. We know that for a fact. Uh, the defense can't put them on their backs, and it still wasn't enough. Is Ben Roethlisberger going to come back and be in playing shape and, and be able to, to put the team on his back when necessary? I mean, James Conner, we saw a really good year from him two years ago, and it's just been a drop-off since then. Will Benny Snell take over, uh, or or um, well, I'm blanking on the name, the other one, Jalen Samuels, will he be a guy that that uh, carries a load in, in the run game? It's it's a lot of question marks. I mean, Juju Smith-Schuster talented. They got Eric Ebron, Chase Claypool, James Washington is, is set for a big year, especially with a, a competent quarterback, hopefully. Uh should they sign Cam Newton? I think it's a question worth talking about. Uh, he would he would be a, a top quality backup and would eventually be able to assume the role as starter when Ben Roethlisberger retires in the next few years here. And I think Mike Tomlin is one of the best players coaches in the NFL. I think he he works hard to to build hard nosed players, guys that work together as a team, and he gets results more often than not. Um, or do they go a different route? Do they do they draft a quarterback round one? We know Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence are guys that will be really good uh, and probably top 10 players here in this next draft. Is that something the Steelers should go after? I think so. I mean, the the prime of the Steelers' defense, we're in it. Well, this is it right now. And if they can't figure it out and they can't get things done now, I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to put games like that together and afford to keep those guys on the roster. So getting a, a quarterback on a rookie salary at this point just makes perfect sense for them. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if a quarterback that they bring in could have similar success to Ben Roethlisberger in his rookie season, which we all know culminated in a Super Bowl victory. So definitely something to look out for. Steelers, they are they are a little low on this list. They could be higher, but it's just, what are you going to get out of, out of Ben Roethlisberger? I mean, the, he's late in his career, coming off a really difficult elbow injury. Uh, what are we going to see? And so for that, I, I just don't know. So I've got him there at 19. At 18, we've got the Houston Texans. Now, I know I said the Steelers had a really solid group around them, especially defensively, and uh, question marks at quarterback and running back. The Texans basically have questions at every spot except for quarterback at this point. Deshaun Watson is a very talented player, but we all know Texans traded DeAndre Hopkins for a and a 2024th round pick for David Johnson, a 2022nd rounder, and a 2021 fourth rounder. One of the most lopsided fleecing trades we've seen in the last few years. Uh, you trade away a guy who who is a top three wide receiver in the league, at least, for a guy who couldn't even average two and a half yards a carry and lost the starting job in Arizona to Kenyon Drake last season. Don't know the value you're getting out of that, even for a second round pick. And to make matters worse, Stephon Diggs, uh, the Vikings took in a haul for him just literally, I think, two days later, which makes him look even worse. Uh, and then on top of that, they signed Randall Cobb to a lot of money. They traded the second-round pick for Brandon Cooks when they could have spent that on a wide receiver. Like, this it genuinely doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand what they're doing. 
They lost their best their best two guys this offseason. DJ Reader signed with the Bengals, and DeAndre Hopkins got traded to the Cardinals. And they replaced them with, with lesser versions of them and maybe not even cheaper at this point. I mean, obviously, they Ross Blacklock is is, is a rookie in their second round pick, so he is he's going to be cheaper for that for that aspect. But Brandon Cooks and Randall Cobb combined made similar to what DeAndre Hopkins would do. And I guarantee you, there's not a GM, fan, player in the league that would rather throw to uh, Brandon Cooks and Randall Cobb combined than DeAndre Hopkins. Just the the sheer amount of pressure he takes off of everybody on offense is is rare, something you do not see very often. And then the draft, Ross Blacklock, we know, Jonathan Greenard, and Charlie Heck. Uh, a fantastic name from Greenard there. I think he'll have a very successful career. But outside of that, I'm just missing, like, they didn't get better. They got worse. So why are you trying a rebuild? This is what it feels like. They're trying to rebuild now when your quarterback is just getting out of his rookie, rookie deal. That's the worst time to do it, especially because... He's probably going to get a $40 million a year deal if he stays. Now, that's a big question. If he stays, we don't know. Uh, they re-signed Laramie Tunzel, And when we talk about resetting the market, uh, $4 million more average per year than the next highest left tackle, which makes no sense. You you trade away DeAndre Hopkins because you don't want to pay him. You, you want to save money. So you get a guy who has a similar contract to him in in David Johnson, you sign guys for even more money in Randall Cobb and Brandon Cooks, and then you spend that excess amount re-signing a left tackle who you traded a mother load for the past offseason. I, I, I genuinely don't understand. They're not favorites in the AFC South, and that leaves the big question. I mean, teams are getting better. The Jags are, are rebuilding, obviously, but the Colts and Titans are, are contenders, serious contenders there in the AFC at least top six teams. You can put them even higher if you want to. Uh, but does Deshaun Watson want to leave? Does he want to stay? I can't imagine that he is excited about the, the things that have been done uh, with the team at this point. It it seems like he's gotten a really short stick. He's drawn a really short stick here. Does he demand a trade? Does he want to get out of Houston? We've seen the damage that, that is done by having a poor team built around a really good quarterback. Uh, Andrew Luck, you retired early. I mean, that's that's the best example, and you don't want something like that to happen. So, don't know what the Texans are doing. Probably could put them even lower, but the fact is, Deshaun Watson is is one of the best young quarterbacks in the league, and he's going to carry them to a lot of wins. Playoffs, maybe not, which is why I've got him here at 18. And finally, number 17, we got the New England Patriots. Now, as far as additions, the Patriots don't do a lot of their work in in free agency, or at least they don't sign a lot of big-name guys, and they do that for good reason. Uh, but as far as losses go, Gronk, who wasn't even playing for them anyway, so I don't know if you can count that a loss, Kyle Van Noy, Jamie Collins, oh yeah, and a guy named Tom Brady. Uh, in the draft, they, they got three guys who were standouts at the Senior Bowl, Kyle Duggar, our guy. Uh, you know, you can listen to his our interview with him, I think in January, right after the Senior Bowl, Earlier on here in the podcast, uh, Josh Uche, who had a talented, a talented player, had a really good game, Senior Bowl game, and Devin Asiasi, the tight end out of UCLA. Uh, Belichick said drafting a quarterback was in the plans, but it didn't work out. So does that mean they trusted him as, as the future guy? Would he be the? Can he be a franchise quarterback? Do they sign Cam Newton, or does Brian Hoyer play a similar role he did with the Texans? or with the Patriots that he did with the Texans, when they grinded out, like, riding on the defense to, like, I think 9-7 and seven or 10-6 and six and, and made the playoffs. It was a weird year, but but that was the last time we really saw uh, a defense will a team to, to the playoffs. And we could see something similar. I mean, the Patriots are really good on defense still. Stephon Gilmore is still there. They obviously added Kyle Duggar, Josh Uche, Chase Winovich is still there. Uh, the McCourty twins re-upped. So you're at a point where... The defense is still really solid. They've got a real a lot of really good playmakers, and we know Belichick gets the most out of his guys. Uh, but now we answer the big question. Who was responsible for the success? Was it Brady or Belichick? Belichick is going to have his toughest task in, I think, since he came to the Patriots of putting a team in the playoffs, and I feel like he can do it. You know, I, I think they're going to grind out, and especially the way the, the uh, new playoff format is with seven teams, I wouldn't be surprised that they slip in here, but... 
the Bills have the best chance right now to win the AFC East uh, than ever before. So if they fumble the bag on this one, who knows what the team's going to look like next year. They, you know, This could be a landing spot for Deshaun Watson. They could go out and get Trevor Lawrence. They could, I don't, I don't even know. You know, the Patriots are, are, are making moves five steps ahead. We always call it 4D chess, what Bill Belichick does. So who knows? But at 17, I think this is a solid spot from the New England Patriots. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate you tuning in. Like I said, if you enjoy it, you can listen to, I think, 77 other episodes, a lot of interviews with players, a lot of really fun stories. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Leave us a, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast or Twitter at PodcastNGL. And we will see you next week.